0: Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, Professor of Church History and Doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree.
1: So grateful to be with you and to talk about the fascinating life of President Henry B. Iring You know, I did have one occasion to meet President Iring He came to our stake and uh, I was able to be in a meeting or two with him. And once again, I was just struck by his humility, his meekness, his kindness, his love, and his interest in everyone. So impressive. In fact, a few years ago, maybe it was just a year ago, I had the chance to interview present Irene's son, Matt, who lives in our stake. And I'm just going to share a couple of things with you that Matt shared with me that I thought would be interesting to kind of kick this off today. But Matt, one of the things Matt said is that you can set an atomic clock to my dad's life, that every day he lives his life according to precise habits. Scripture study is every morning. And in fact, when the children were younger, he would paint pictures because he's an artist and he can paint and he has those skills, but he would paint pictures from the scriptures that his family was reading. Today, he sings to his wife, Kathleen, with a nursing staff every morning. They sing the hymns of the church. Kathleen is uh, quite sick and bedridden, and uh, the way that President Irene nurtures and cares for her is a great testament to the love of Christ that he's filled with. And then every evening he writes in his electronic journal in third person and this journal includes pictures and photos from the day and this is just how he how he lives his life. He's lived in the same house in Bountiful, Utah since 1977. I am looking at a picture of that house right now and it looks so much like the house that President Irene grew up with uh, grew up in in Princeton, New Jersey. It's kind of fascinating. One of the things that President Irene would really believed in is that he didn't want to do sports or he didn't want to participate in sports as an adult that would take him away from his family. He would only engage in sporting events that he could do with his children, which included basketball, tennis, and swimming. In fact, when the family moved to Bountiful from Rexburg, he would often take his children in the evenings to the Deseret Gym where they would engage in their favorite sports. Matt said that uh, his mom is the real athlete in the family. And I know President Irene and Sister Irene played a lot of tennis in their day. But he said, my dad would admit that. He would be the first to say, oh yeah, mom is the athlete. But then Matt said this, even at the age of 50, he said his dad could dunk a basketball and had an awesome three-point shot. What a lot of people don't may not know is right now in our, cor- in our current group of our 15 Prophets, seers, and Revelators, two of those men participated in a, in a collegiate sport. And one was Elder Holland, who played basketball at Dixie College. And the other one was President Irene, who first received a basketball scholarship to Dartmouth, but opted not to go. He stayed home. It was cheaper to stay home and, and go to the University of Utah. But he, did, but he did high jump in college, and he high jumped his height, which is six foot three. And then Matt said he even coached my Pop Warner football team uh, even though he didn't know much about football. Anyway, just some interesting little tidbits from Matthew, his son. Now, going going a little further back, present Irene, Henry B. Irene was born on May the 31st, 1933 in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, his father at the time was, pro- was was a professor at Princeton in chemistry. In fact, his dad, whose also name is Henry Irene, was a prominent world-renowned chemist. Uh, Henry Irene received 15 honorary doctorate degrees and eight top chemistry prizes. This man was well known and, and once again renowned worldwide. Uh, in fact, Henry Irene would travel the world. He literally traveled the world lecturing. And uh, that was a big part of his life when Henry was a young, a young child. The chemistry building at the University of Utah is named after him where he completed his professional career. His dad passed away in 1982. Now his mom, Mildred, was a doctoral candidate and the acting chairman of a college at the University of Utah when they were married. Uh, Their home life was stimulating and uh, a lot of times the Irene children were brought down to the basement where they would learn math and science from their dad at a chalkboard that they had mounted down there. And once again, all of our families have cultures, we have traditions, some of us play board games together, some of us like to eat together and socialize together, but the Irines are down in the basement doing chemical equations, which is just super impressive. In fact, once as a boy, President Irene, uh or sorry, Henry Irene told his son, Henry, never worry about the future, just do your homework and we'll see how the test goes tomorrow. Everything was kind of this educational metaphor, is how life went for the Irene family. What is interesting about my dad, Elder Irene once reflected, is not so much what he did, but what or who he was. He was a simple Mormon boy from Pima, Arizona, a boy with deep faith, and his achievements never changed him much. In fact, I want to talk about his dad in one of our next podcasts, because his dad's life is so fascinating. Now, Mildred, his mom, who was from Granger, uh, Utah, at a time when a limited number of women pursued higher education, she did graduate from the University of Utah and went on to become the head of the Women's Physical Education Department. I mentioned that she was pursuing a doctoral degree. uh, That was at the University of Wisconsin, and that's where she met Henry, and they eventually married. But when you put that in context and think of a woman back in the 1920s, uh, attending college, number one, but also pursuing a doctorate degree, you can begin to appreciate the depth, the passion for education, the intellect that, that the Irene family possesses. It's quite amazing. The Irene family has left a long legacy of faith and of hope and of optimism. And so this story I wanna share with you is one that President Irene told years ago. But he just said this, he said that when tragedy strikes or even when it looms, our families will have the opportunity to look into our hearts to see whether we know what we said we knew. Or in other words, children are looking at their parents say, mom and dad, do you really believe this stuff? Back to President Irene, our children will watch, they'll feel the spirit confirmed that we lived as we preached remember that confirmation, and pass that story across the generations. I have one such story in my legacy. Grandmother Irene learned from a doctor in his office that she would die of stomach cancer. My father, her oldest son, so that's Henry, had driven her there and was waiting for her. He told me that on the way home, she said, Now, Henry, let's be cheerful. Let's sing hymns. And they sang, "O oh, my father, and come, come, you saints, where the last verse begins, And should we die before our journeys through? I wasn't there, our present Irene said, but I imagine they sang loudly. They didn't have the very melodic voices that some have, but, uh, but they had faith. There were no tears, just faith. She spent the last of her months in the home of her oldest child, her daughter. Aunt Camilla told me that Grandma complained only once. And it wasn't really a complaint, she just said, This hurts. Now, there are many people who have been cheerful and brave in the face of death, but it means far more to a family when the person has taught and testified of the power of the Savior to succor of the sureness of the resurrection and of the hope of eternal life. And then President Irene says, The Spirit confirmed to me that Grandma's peace and her courage were signs that her testimony was true. And because of all that, all was well, he said. And then President Irene shared another lesson that he learned from his dad. And by the way, you know, it feels like some of our apostles are very riveted or fixed on different things in their life, different passions, like President Utdorf, no question, flying. President Irene, in a similar way, has spoken so much about his dad and many of the talks that he's given. It's very obvious that his father had a profound effect on his life. And here is a conference message from our present Irene, talking about his father. But he said, First, I give counsel to husbands and wives. Pray for the love which allows you to see the good in your companion. And pray for the love that makes weaknesses and mistakes seem small. And pray for the love to make your companion's joy your own, he said. And pray for the love to want to lessen the load and soften the sorrows of your companion. And then he shared this personal experience. I saw this in my parents' marriage. In my, mother, in my mother's final illness, the more uncomfortable she became, the more giving her comfort, became the dominant intent of my father's life. He asked that the hospital set up a bed in her room. He was determined to be there to be sure that she wanted for nothing. He walked the miles to work each morning and back to her side at night through those difficult times for her. I believe it was a significant gift from God to him that his power to love grew when it mattered so much to her. I think he was doing what Jesus would have done out of love. Now, once again, think of that legacy, that legacy from uh, that President Irene's father left and passed down of how husbands should treat their wives. Now, for a significant portion of President Irene's life, they did live in Princeton, New Jersey. and As you can imagine, back in that time period, the church would have been rather small. In fact, it was a branch, which President Iron tells us on one occasion that uh, the branch pretty much consisted of his family with a few other older converts and a few other members that happened just to be attending Princeton. But he said, for the most part, though, the church was my family. The, uh, the Aaronic priest, priesthood, he said, was my brother and me. Uh, the branch then didn't meet in our home, but in a rented hall, it was a lodge hall, because there was a green felt pool table right in the middle of their meeting. Um, and he still remembers a lesson early on about pioneers because they used a model of, uh, out of clay of the wagon train that was placed on that pool table. Now, there was a general conference story that I want to share with you because it was so funny. In fact, I think President Irene broke out a script, so to speak, to share this personal experience.
0: I lived in a tiny branch of the church in New Jersey, on the east coast of the United States. I was the only deacon in the branch, not the only one attending, the only one on the records. My older brother, Ted, was the only teacher he is here tonight I don't think there was a priest although one time a sailor came and volunteered to bless the sacrament we thinking that he was a member my father gave him who was the branch president gave him the chance to bless the sacrament I still worry about that I have to insert here, too, I wish I had heard President Uchtdorf and Brother Gibson when I was there, because I'm sure I was living below the potential that I had. And I even thought of who I could have gone and converted in the neighborhood, but that was a long shot. Uh, I I can think of Frank Turgeon across the street. He went to prison. And then Petey, uh, he went to prison, too. It was a tough neighborhood.
1: <laughs> I love thinking about that neighborhood that President Irene grew up in. But not only was it a tough neighborhood, but it must have been an awesome neighborhood too, because that was where the foundations were built for President Irene to have the gospel set deep in his heart. As he talks about what we would probably call a district conference, more like a state conference, He just mentioned that there was no building, no gym, no steak center, and we traveled to a hotel ballroom for what must have been, yeah, he did say a district conference. He said, I was sitting on a folding chair somewhere near the back next to my mother. I must have been very young because I can remember putting my legs through the back of the chair and sitting backwards instead of forward. But I remember hearing something, a man's voice from the pulpit. I turned around and looked, and I still remember That the speaker was at the rostrum, set on wooden risers. There was a tall window behind him. He was the priesthood visitor. I don't know who he was, but he was tall and bald, and he seemed very old to me. He must have been talking about the Savior or the Prophet Joseph Smith or both, because that was all I remember hearing much about in those days. But as he spoke, I knew that what he said came from God, and that it was true, and it burned in my heart. Now that was at a young age. I mean, President Irene was probably five, six, seven years old when he has that great experience of hearing that speaker and knowing that Jesus is the Christ, that Joseph is a prophet, and that the gospel is true. Now, in the Irene family, growing up, there were three sons. You had Ted, there was Henry, and then there was Hardin. And one of the things that Sister Irene felt strongly about was that when those boys began to you know, become teenagers, that the family would move, that they would leave the East Coast and move somewhere out West, whether that was Utah, Arizona, Idaho, but they would move somewhere uh, where they could be closer to LDS people and especially LDS girls. So they would have opportunities uh, to date and which they just didn't have, you know, in Princeton, New Jersey. And so it was interesting, uh, just as the boys were becoming into into those teenage years, Henry Sr. receives a call from Ray Olpin, who at that time was the president of the University of Utah. And he invited Henry to be the dean of the graduate school and to continue his research in chemistry. Now, Henry had promised that he would do that, that he would make that move at some point. And this was the golden opportunity. Here was the University of Utah calling. And uh, even though Henry had promised his wife that he would get out west at some point, he turned down the offer. And then that night, like at the dinner table or something, I'm imagining, hey, what happened at work today? Oh, it was really funny. I got a, uh, I received an offer from the University of Utah to come out there and be the dean of their graduate school and to teach chemistry. Oh my gosh, when are we moving? I'm, I'm visualizing Mildred saying that. Oh no, I, I turned him down. I told him no. As I understand the story, Mildred writes Henry quite a forceful letter. Now, you know that there's a little tenseness in the marriage when you are not speaking to your spouse, but writing them a letter instead, and basically made it clear that, look, you promised, you promised that we would move, and this is our great opportunity to do so. And so Henry went back to the University of Utah, told them he would accept the offer, and and then the family's going to move out west. And it's not an easy move, right? I mean, In fact, by the way, let's mention right now that that experience alone serves Henry well, you know, because what's going to happen years later in Henry's life is he's going to leave the prestigious Stanford University and go to Rick's Junior College to be the president. And uh, once again, this experience of his father going from Princeton To what would have been a much smaller universe of Utah back in the 1950s. Um, But what an experience. And guess what? Henry didn't like it. It wasn't his thing. He was not happy. He was 13 years old when they moved to Salt Lake City. He found Utah not to be a fun place. He was mocked for his New Jersey accent, which I'm trying to visualize. He didn't have a lot of close friends. He wished he could go back to New Jersey. He took little satisfaction from his studies or even from basketball. In other words, he just probably was a little bit bummed out, you know, we could say. And so Henry isolated a little bit. He spent, he had high standards. And and when he noticed that some of the peers that he was associating with didn't have those same standards, he didn't rebuke them. He didn't call them to repentance, but he just kind of withdrew and dove headfirst into the scriptures. He, re, he reads the Book of Mormon five times as a teenager, but he's also reading the teachings of presidents of the church and learning from them. And, of course, he's studying, and he does really like basketball and becomes really good at it. In fact, he he plays at East High School in Salt Lake. One of the books he's going to read as a teenager was what we would call today like the teachings of David O. McKay. In, In those days, the book was called Gospel Ideals, and it was just a compilation of the teachings of the current prophet, President McKay. And one chapter described how, we, how you would know uh, if you're in love and also how you should view women. And President Irene said that President McKay's lofty words more than touched my heart. I felt a confirmation that they were true. And without telling anyone, I took his words as one of my standards of goodness. And so Henry does not uh, purposely, he does not really date he doesn't engage socially in a lot of ways. He was immersed in the scriptures, like I said, and in his studies and in basketball. And uh, and that was about it. Those were his focal points. Now what Henry's going to do next is he's going to go, after he graduates from East High School, he's going to go to the University of Utah. Now once again, he had the basketball scholarship to Dartmouth, that was there. But his dad convinces him for the most part, look, you don't want to go out there. It's going to cost so much money. Uh, you could stay here at our home, live for free, save money, and, and have a great college experience. So then we come to another crossroads in the, in the life of President Irene. So here he is at the University of Utah. He's on the track team. He's majoring in physics, living at home. And I'll read you the story. Because of his great love for science, Henry Iron encouraged each of his sons to major in physics and to, have a, uh, to prepare, basically, for a career in some scientific field. And it was while Hal, by the way, Hal is what Henry really went by. That was his nickname, but they called him Hal. He was studying physics, like I mentioned. And then he and his dad have this conversation one day that really changes his life. Henry asked his dad for help with a complex math problem. My father was at the blackboard that we kept in the basement. So not only do they have a blackboard in New Jersey, but they have one in Salt Lake City as well. And Elder Irene said that suddenly my dad stopped. And he said, Hal, we were working on this same kind of problem a week ago. And you don't seem to understand it any better now than you did then. Haven't you been working on it? A little chagrined, Hal admitted that he had not been working on that problem. And then his dad said this, you don't understand. When you walk down the street, when you're in the shower, when you don't have to be thinking about anything else, isn't this what you're thinking about? I know a lot lot of you are thinking, probably not. I'm probably not thinking about physics when I don't have anything to think about. And so Elder Irene says, when I told him no, my father paused and it was a very tender and poignant moment because I knew how much he loved me and how much he wanted me to be a scientist. And then he said hal i think you better get out of physics you ought to find something that you love so much that when you don't have to think about anything that's what you think about and i share that as a revelation for all of us especially those who are of the college age where we are really thinking and determining what we're going to do with our lives often in a professional way and thinking hey wait a minute if this isn't what you think about when you don't have anything else to think about maybe you shouldn't go into that field, right? And so President Irene does not go into the field of physics. He does graduate in physics from the University of Utah, but his professional trajectory is going to change. He's going to aim now and point towards a career in business, something that he really was intrigued by. Now let's talk about the mission for a minute that President Irene was able to serve but on Sunday, on a Sunday years ago, many years ago, when Hal was nearing the end of his physics studies at the University of Utah, his bishop, Bishop Alvinar Dyer, who later became a member of the first presidency of the church, but he announced that he would soon be released as bishop and he had been called to the church's central state's mission as a mission president. And by the way, things must have been done so differently back in those days because his bishop says to Hal Eyring. Hal, I'd love for you to go with me. Now, Bishop Dyer's declaration surprised Hal. The Korean War was in full swing and missionary service opportunities were limited. We've already talked about President Oaks not being able to serve a mission because of the Korean War. And uh, in fact, for the preceding two years, 51, 1951 and 1952, the church had been unable to call any draft-eligible U.S. male into missionary service. It was only by a special agreement with the United States government reached by Brother Gordon B. Hinckley that every ward could begin to send one missionary per year into the field. And Bishop Dyer said excitedly to Hal, I just got this permission. I can send one person and I want that to be you. Now, once again, this, this opportunity to Hal Irene comes not at age 18 or 19 but as he's really finishing now his college career how felt mixed emotions his father henry had been unable to serve a full-time mission because of his family's indebtedness during a post-world war one economic depression but without uh, with that immediate exception Hal descended from some of the church's most faithful missionaries in fact his great-grandfather Henry Eyring served three full-time missions. Another great-grandfather, Miles Park Romney, twice left his family in response to mission calls. And like Mildred's grandfather, John Binion, both of these men essentially worked as missionaries at the direction of the Brethren all their lives. The tradition of full-time mission service ran deeply in the Eyring family. But on the other hand, at the age of 21, Hal assumed that the time for his mission had passed. He was dating and looking forward to marrying and starting a family. And then he also had an ROTC commitment, which meant he would have to spend two years in the Air Force, probably in Korea or Japan, right after graduation from college. And with dozens of mission-eligible young men in Bishop uh, Dyer's large ward, including some exempt from military service because of physical limitations, Hal just never really anticipated a mission call or a mission opportunity. And it, it needs to be said that in those days mission service was certainly admired, but not necessarily expected. It would be another 20 years before President Spencer W. Kimball would declare that every male member of the church should serve a mission. So in light of his age and his missionary obligation, Hal felt justified in asking a fateful question. Bishop, he said, I need to know something. Is it the Lord asking, or is it just you? Bishop Dyer paused for a moment and said, Hal, it's just me. That helped Henry make the make the decision that he needed to make, based on some of his family experiences, experiences that one of his brothers had in the mission field that wasn't so favorable. Hal took the opportunity to pass that that experience up. He just felt like it wasn't it wasn't the right time for him, and so right after he graduates, he does have that ROTC commitment, and he's going to be stationed briefly in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In fact, he's supposed to be in Albuquerque just for a couple of weeks. But not long after arriving in Albuquerque, in fact, it was his second Sunday in New Mexico, he was asked to meet with President Clement Hilton of the church's Albuquerque district. And President Hilton calls Hal to be a district missionary. And Hal had mixed feelings about that call. It did fulfill a promise made and a blessing given before he left home. And in that blessing, his new bishop, Weldon Moore had said that Hal's military service would be his mission. Yet, his military orders were clear. And President Irene said it this way. He said, look, I'm happy to serve, he told President Hilton, but I'm going to be leaving in four weeks. The president responded, I don't know about that. We're going to call you to serve anyway. So Hal accepts that call in in a series of miraculous events. Instead of being sent off to Japan or Korea or somewhere else, he actually is stationed in Albuquerque for the next two years. And for those two years, he serves as a district missionary, which meant that many nights of the week he would go out and engage in missionary work. And he actually had great success. He was able to be instrumental in bringing many people into the church. It was a wonderful, ful- fulfilling experience for President Iring After his service in the military concludes... President Irene then heads to Harvard. Now, that wasn't easy. There was a lot of work involved in getting into the Harvard Business School, the Harvard Graduate School of Business, where he's going to do a master's an MBA there. But after he finishes that degree, he has some awareness. He had done an internship and had some other experiences. And he realized, you know what? It's not so much business that I'm passionate about. I love teaching business. And with that After he graduates with his MBA from Harvard, he stays and does a doctorate degree at Harvard University in business administration as well. Now, while President Irene is at Harvard, he's serving uh, as uh, a member of the district presidency. And in that district presidency, where he's serving with Wilbur Cox, who I've mentioned before, who President Nelson was instrumental in bringing back into church activity, well anyway, it was a what we would call kind of a morning side type of program. But because of his position in the district presidency, President Iron was conducting that meeting. And Kathleen Johnson, daughter of Cyril and Lepre Lindsay Johnson of Palo Alto, had come to Boston to attend summer school at Harvard. And it was that sunrise service. He saw, he sees Kathleen coming out of a grove of trees. Not only was he struck by her beauty, but at that moment, the words of President McKay. Remember, he had been reading the teachings of David O. McKay as a teenager. And he remembered this line, that if you meet a girl in whose presence you feel a desire to do your best, such a young woman is worthy of your love. Hal was very impressed by the goodness that radiated from Kathleen. And then he had this thought, that that's the best person I've ever seen. And if I could be with her, I could be every good thing I've ever wanted to be. Not long after that, he does meet Kathleen for the first time. In fact, I think on their first date, they played tennis together. But that begins a relationship because in the fall, Kathleen goes back to Stanford. And of course, President Irene is still at uh, at Harvard. And so for the most part, their relationship is long distance. Uh, They're on the phone, they're writing letters. And then in 1962 in July... They're married in the Logan Temple by Elder Spencer W. Kimball, who, to make this connection now, is President Irene's uncle. So President Irene's dad, Henry, has a sister, Camilla, and Camilla is married to Elder Spencer W. Kimball. Now, not long after that, the Irenes go right to where Kathleen is from. They're going to go to Stanford. And Stanford is going to be an incredible opportunity for them. He's going to be a professor in their business school, in their graduate school of business from 1962 to 1971. While there, he's going to serve as the director of numerous corporations in consumer and industrial products, in health services, and high technology. He's on the board of directors for several major organizations. He co-authors books. He's writing articles. He's thriving as a professor at Stanford. In fact, they take a little break from sixty four and sixty five where he's a visiting professor at uh, MIT. Meanwhile, while he's having this thriving career at Stanford, these job opportunities start to come his way. US. Senator Henry Bellman, for example, of Oklahoma wanted Hal to be his chief of staff. Werner von Braun of Hands of NASA, and rocket engineer offered Hal to be his chief of staff at NASA. The New York governor, Nelson Rockefeller, wanted Hal to, to serve as his chief chief science officer. And so on and on it went. And then there was Stanford itself, where many at Stanford felt two things. Number one, that the next dean of the business school would be Henry Irene. But there were a lot of people who felt, no, no, he's going to be the president of Stanford. So that's what was going on in his life. Meanwhile... He is also um, serving as a bishop at the Stanford First Ward and loving his time as a bishop. And now let me describe one more highlight just for a minute. I want to describe where the Irines lived while at Stanford. And uh, so when they, when they moved to the Palo Alto area to accept that job, You know, Kathleen's parents were quite well off, and they buy this 12-acre estate on a beautiful hill that overlooks the San Francisco Bay. And the estate included formal gardens, an oversized swimming pool with with bathhouses, a tennis court, riding stables, and a four-bedroom guest house. And that's where the Irines lived. They lived in this guest house, And it was a wonderful opportunity for them because I believe it was rent-free and they could stay there, save a lot of money, and it was a great facility. In fact, there was like a pool house there that President Irene was able to use for kind of his bishop's office slash other office where he would do some of his writing and interview people. And anyway, it was just a great place. And And I'm just sharing that with you because I want to couch that in the experience that's going to happen next. It was a great time of their lives. Henry loved what he was doing at Stanford. He loved that he was given freedom to design his courses in his own way. I already told you about the MIT visits. He was also in the business world serving as an officer and director at for Finnegan Instrument Corporation, becoming the founder and director of System Industries Incorporated. These were all companies that were just on the uh, they were the foundational pieces to what was would soon be coming in Silicon Valley with uh, the computer age. Uh, in the church, I mentioned he was serving as the bishop. Life was just wonderful, and all that was about to change. Because one night, Kathy nudged Hal. And she asked, are you sure you're doing the right thing with your life? And President Irene interjects, wait, I was so surprised. Now remember my situation. I have tenure at Stanford. I'm the Bishop of the ward. We're living right next door to her parents. I love what I'm doing. It's like the Garden of Eden." And then she asked me that question, are you, are you sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? And then Kathleen said, couldn't you be doing studies for Neil Maxwell? And then elder Irene said, you have to understand something Neil A. Maxwell was the commissioner of education for the church at the time, but we didn't even know elder Maxwell. <laughs> When asked about that night, Kathy is not sure what brought forth that question, but she just said, look, yeah, we were very happy there, but somehow I just felt like there was something more important that Henry could be doing. And I knew that his teaching at Stanford was wonderful, but I felt there was something he could do to teach that would really change lives. And so Hal determined he would pray about it. And at first he didn't receive an answer, at least so he thought, but it wasn't long after that when the phone rang and who was it out of the blue? Church Commissioner Neal Maxwell, who knew Hal and was on the line asking if Hal could meet him in Salt Lake City sometime soon. So Hal does. He arrives at his parents' house in Salt Lake. Elder Maxwell comes right over, and the first words out of his mouth were, Hal, I'd like to ask you to be the president of Ricks College. Hal, after the shock of all that, indicated that he would need to pray over that. Of course he would. I'll have to pray about it, he said. And Elder Maxwell, who was Neil at the time, agreed that the experience, yes, you definitely need to pray about it. Please do that. But be expeditious because we meet with the First Presidency tomorrow morning at 830. Or in other words, basically, we need to know an answer by tomorrow morning at 830. Hal spent that night. By the way, I'm reading from the book, I Will Lead You Along, The Life of Henry B. Eyring by Rob Eaton and Henry J. Irene, Eyring, President Eyring's son. This is such a great book. I recommend it to everyone. But Hal spent that night in the unfinished basement room that had been, that had been his as a high school student. He slept soundly for six hours and then rose early to seek the confirmation that had not come as he prayed about it the night before. Of course, he wanted to have an answer for the First Presidency, given his careful attention, to the rebuke received just a few weeks before he, he expected one. He was willing to go to a place he had never set his eyes on and in the process sacrificed the prestige of Stanford and the comforts of the hill. The hill is what they called where they lived. But there was no reply to his question about taking the job. The only impression that came to his mind was, was this statement. It's my school. And when he felt that from the spirit that it's my school, that was all he needed to know. And now they're going to make that huge transition from the Bay Area of California to the hayfields of Rexburg, Idaho. And Elder Irene said this. He said, you've got to remember, I grew up in the East and I was living in California. And I have to admit, I didn't even know where Rick's College was. And if you had asked me whether it was a two-year or a four-year college, I couldn't have told you. That's just kind of the context of of how this was hitting them. And by the way, this was going to be a mid-year type of move. Because on December the 10th, 1971, Henry Irene was inaugurated as the president of Ricks College. His children are actually going to stay in California for another semester, you know, from January to May to finish their, their school year completely. And so President Irene goes from living in that prestigious place, tennis courts, pools, the whole thing, a beautiful home, to living in a trailer in Rexburg, Idaho. But I I hope that shows all of us the kind of person that he is. In fact, let's talk more about that now for a few minutes and talk about the kind of father and husband that President Irene is and has been. I think as we study these men's lives and, and are able to examine them in their own homes, we begin to see the discipleship and the love of the gospel that they have and their commitment to their families. So President Iron is six foot three, a hundred and sixty-three pounds, actually quite athletic, loves athletics, loves sports. We've already said that he made it clear that he would not participate in any sport he could not do with his children. And we talked about tennis, basketball, and swimming. But also Saturdays, which we'll talk more about this in a minute, were were, were reserved for work projects. The family could build a bookcase or a kitchen cabinet or clean the garage or do some yard work, but Saturday mornings were family work projects. Now, I love that when President Irene arrives in Rexburg and settles in as the president, it doesn't take long for him to realize, "Oh my gosh, this is incredible. He loves it." His young sons go to an elementary attend an elementary school just around the corner and so they come over and eat lunch With President Irene every day, he walks them to school. And then when they're done from school, they come and walk back to his office on the campus and get him. There is a tennis court close by on the campus where the Irons can play all the tennis that they want to. Um, Anyway, so just some great celestial habits were being developed by President Irene and his family as they settled in once again in Rexburg. At the end of every day, President Irene would look at Kathleen and say, who needs us? Who do we need to call? And then, being guided by the Spirit, they would call that person and minister to them over the phone. A great lesson for all of us. Who needs us today? I love that President Irene was always asking that question and following the promptings that would come. Now, if you want to know how the Irenes were as parents, I think we, we need to learn about Kathleen a little bit. And one of the Irene brothers shared this story. It was Henry who just was released as the president of BYU-Idaho. He said, My brother and I were in front of the TV on a Saturday night around midnight. It was a tawdry comedy show that we shouldn't have been watching. The basement room was dark except for the light from the television. Without warning, Mom walked in. She was wearing a white flowing nightgown and carrying a pair of shears. She made no sound. She reached behind the set, grabbed the cord, and gathered it into a loop. inserted the shears, cut the cord with a single stroke, sparks flew, and the set went dead, and then mom just glided out of the room. That was it. Sons are watching a TV show she didn't approve of. She meanders into the room, cuts the cord, slides right out, doesn't say a word. Case closed, right? No. These are the irons. These are smart people. What do these sons do? They're innovative, They cut a cord from a broken vacuum cleaner and connect it to the TV where mom had cut the cord. And within a matter of minutes, actually, they're watching TV again. Well, mom's not going to tolerate that, right? She got the last laugh. When we came home from school the next Monday, Henry said, we found the television set in the middle of the floor with a huge crack through the thick glass screen. We immediately suspected mother... And when we confronted her, she responded with a perfectly straight face. I was dusting under the TV and it just slipped. And that was it. But guess what? That began a, much more of an emphasis on those Saturday morning work projects. But it wasn't just the family working together. It was the family de- developing talents and skills together. Learning how to paint and do artwork. Learning how to build furniture. And of course, working together together brought the family closer together. Sister Irene described her husband Henry as steady. She said steadiness, that is one of the best adjectives to describe him. He's a wonderful husband and father, very caring. But she said, one of the things I appreciate most about Hal is also his sensitivity to the spirit, which he brings into our home. And then Elder Irene credits, once again, his own dad. My father spent time with us even when laden with heavy and demanding responsibilities because he loved to. And I feel the same way. Organizing Saturday morning family work projects or painting elaborate watercolor illustrations for family home evening presentations are things I'd love to do. He admits with a chuckle. Oh, they just had such a great, wonderful, close family. In fact, President Irene really did develop skills for wood carving and painting with watercolors. Today, the Irene home is full of paintings, carvings, and furniture that they created uh, as a family. Now, let's take a pause here to share another experience that I believe probably happened when President Irene was at Ricks College. But it was it was how how his father had this huge impact on him. He said years ago, I was sitting in a sacrament meeting with my father. He seemed to be enjoying what I thought was a dull talk given by a member of the State High Council. and I watched my father, and to my amazement his face was beaming as the speaker droned on. I kept stealing looks back at him, and sure enough, through the whole thing, he had this beatific smile. Our home was near enough to the ward meeting house that we walked home, and I remember walking with my father on the shoulder of the road, which at that time wasn't paved. I kicked a stone ahead of me as I plodded what I would do next and finally I got up enough courage to ask my dad what he thought about the meeting and he said it was wonderful now I really had a problem President Irene said my father had this wonderful sense of humor but you didn't want to push it too far I was puzzled I was trying to summon up enough courage to ask him how I could have had such a different opinion of that meeting and that speaker but like all good fathers he must have read my mind because he started to laugh And he said, Hal, let me tell you something. Since I was a very young man, I have taught myself to do something in a church meeting. When the speaker begins, I listen carefully and ask myself what it is he is trying to say. Then once I think I know what he's trying to accomplish, I give myself a sermon on that subject. My dad let that sink in for a moment as we walked along. And then with that special self-deprecating chuckle of his, he said, Hal, since I've never been to a bad meeting. You see, Henry Irene Sr. always believed that he could learn from anyone and everyone. In fact, our President Irene said that my dad used to embarrass me when we stopped to get gas because he would seek advice from the gas station attendant. Dad would always treat him as an equal. And he would say to me, look, I can learn something from anybody. Everyone has had experiences that I just haven't had. Well, back to President Irene. They have six children, four sons and two daughters. The four sons come first and then the two daughters. With the four sons, it's very athletic. There's a lot of outdoor activity. There's a lot of work. With his daughters, the same, but there's there's an emphasis. With those daughters, one of the things he did with them a lot was he would watercolor. He would bake bread. They would cook together. They would balance the checkbook in the family together and do the budgeting. And they even created a family newsletter together. And I love how President Irene adjusts a lot with his children and according to what they need from him. Matthew described his father's influence this way, something that we all feel dad is, is that he has this great ability to make us feel that we're valuable people. He always makes me want to try harder. My father has told us that there are two things that he prays for every night. The first is what blessings do I have that I'm not aware of. And by the way, can I take a time out, pause out of that for a minute? But when you're praying to know what blessings do you have that you're not aware of, I just think that's a high level of spirituality to be praying for that. And the second thing that President Irene prays for is he asks, Heavenly Father, who can I help? And then Matthew adds, Dad says there's never been a day that his prayers have not been answered. When it comes to a husband President Irene would be a dream husband for so many, waking up early in the morning before anyone else, making breakfast for his family, making breakfast for his wife, waffles, biscuits, eggs, bacon, whatever, and then the main course, always the scriptures. Kathleen said he has taught the gospel in our home with great clarity and conviction to make it all the clearer for us to understand, and he has lived it. What a great tribute. Now let's just go back and set the tone. He's been in Idaho for a while. He's loving life. He really didn't want to go to Idaho at first. That was quite a sacrifice, but then it became an incredible blessing. And I think President Irene, this is just my opinion, but in my mind, he thinks probably, you know what, I think we'll just stay here forever. This is incredible. He loved it. As the university president, he was able to teach classes, both in the business area, but also in religion. He taught uh, religious courses. Uh, he loved his church assignments he loved what he was doing as a president and the creativity that he was uh, allowed to have but then those job offers start to come in again he was pursued to be the new president of the university of utah president allen h Oakes, i say president because when president oaks was the president of byu he wanted henry to be the dean of the business school in fact president irene was supposed to counsel with Harold B. Lee, the president of the church, about taking that job, and President Lee died the day before their meeting. But Elder Maxwell was able to pass along the, just before President Lee died, he did recommend that Hal stay on at Rick's College. And just f- from that those words, to follow a prophet, Hal turned down the BYU offer and stayed at Rick's. In 1976, he was offered a job to be the vice president with Black and Decker to serve over their McCullough operations in the United States. But he just felt inspired that he needed to stay at Rick's College. And sure enough, not long after that, it was 1976, the Teton Dam burst, and President Irene knew that he was supposed to be in Idaho still because of what happened in the community of Rexburg and his role in not only helping save people and get people to higher ground, but to work with the U.S. government and then to work with the rebuilding efforts in Rexburg. And that was a great experience. Not long after that, in 1976, uh, Henry was asked by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, who had just been called to be the Church Commissioner of Education, to be basically his assistant, to be the Deputy Commissioner of Education. And so now he serves as the Church Commissioner of Education for a time. In 197 that was in 76 In 1979 he was approached by BYU one more time and offered to be the dean of the business school and turned it down. And then in 1980 he was invited to become the Church Commissioner of Education. Now, like Elder Oaks or President Oaks, it's almost like every job that President Irene took made less money starting out as a Stanford professor, but then taking a pay cut to come to Rick's College and then taking a pay cut to be the Church Commissioner of Education. But he serves in that capacity from 1980 to about 1985. In 1985, he was called into the presiding bishopric of the church. From 1992 to 1995, he serves in the Quorum of the Seventy. And also, we should note that from 92 to 2005, he serves as the Church Commissioner of Education again. And then, in 2008, he is called to serve as the second counselor in the first presidency to President Hinckley. And then President Hinckley died shortly after that. And then from 2008 to 2018, he's the first counselor in the first presidency to President Monson. And then, of course, when President Nelson was called in 2018, President Irene was invited to be his second counselor in the First Presidency one more time. What an awesome, awesome legacy of church service that Elder Henry B. Eyring slash President Eyring has been involved in over the many years. Let me conclude with just a wonderful story that President Eyring shared that I think highlights the humility that we see from him on so many occasions. He said that one time while I was serving in the presiding bishopric, I had a remarkable week during which we were dealing with a series of tough problems. I met with the First Presidency four or five times during that week, and in each meeting, I was supposed to suggest answers to some very hard problems. And in every instance, I felt the hand of heaven touch me and guide me so that I knew what to say. In one case, the First Presidency even confirmed that my proposed solution was what needed to be done. That's a wonderful feeling. I think I started thinking that things were rolling along pretty well in my life. Yes. Anytime you have the first presidency, I'm just interjecting here, tell you that you're doing a great job. I think that be, you, you would, you would be on top of some kind of cloud back to President Irene. Then I came home and my wife and I got into a conversation about some problem that she and I were working on at that time. And during the conversation, I expressed my opinion a little too forcefully. And as I knew the answer, And there didn't need to be a lot more discussion. I immediately felt the Holy Ghost leave the room, and I was about to leave for a state conference, and I was almost frightened because I knew I could do no good without the Lord's help. So on that state conference trip, I began to analyze what had gone wrong, and I suddenly realized that you can have a trial of your faith from success— I thought that I was doing wonderfully well, and that led me to act as if I were someone special, to act in a way that grieved the Holy Ghost. If you'll remember that the key to not being diverted from serving God is humility. And then you'll understand that some of those days when you thought things were going badly were a great blessing. You might not have sought them, but if you react to such days by recognizing your dependence on God, You could actually be in a better situation than if everything had gone extremely well. Too much success, in fact, could lead you into a more difficult trial because it could make you arrogant. My testimony is that Henry B. Irene is the Lord's servant, that the Lord speaks through him, that for many years I've been taught great, wonderful truths and I've been inspired by the messages of President Irene. I'm so grateful for his humility and so grateful also for his life and the fact that he always has chosen God first. You know, Matt Irene told me once that when my parents die, everything they have goes to the church. It doesn't go, it doesn't go to family. It doesn't go to any other kind of trust fund. It goes right to the church. Why? He said, because my mom and dad are all in. This gospel is, means everything to them. I am so gr- grateful for such consecrated servants like the Irene's. And I share this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.